When you find yourself having to go to court over an estate issue, it's no fun. For me, it was seven years, 10 court appearances, and $50,000 in lawyer's fees. While everyone says they want their day in court, how do you get prepared? My guest today, Francine Tone, has some tips for you, which might make you think twice about heading to court. Next on the Executor Help Podcast. Welcome to the Executor Help Podcast, the show dedicated to help you settle an estate, pick an executor, and avoid family fights. For more information, visit davidedy.com. Now here's your host, David Eady. With me today on Executive Help is Francine Tone. Lawsuits are stressful and costly, believe me, I know. Uh, Most good lawyers firmly believe in preparing their clients at the beginning of any representation, especially when there's an estate fight. And luckily today, I have one of the good lawyers, Francine Tone. She's a three-time number one best-selling author. Some of her books include What Every Good Lawyer Wants to Know, An Insider Guide to How to Reduce Stress, Reduce Costs, and Get the Most from Your Lawyer, the soon-to-be-released The Art of Action, Keeping uh, Keys to Creating Optimal Life, Work Balance, and Harmony. She's a strategic business advisor and speaker. She's managing partner of Tone and Tone Attorneys at Law, appellate law specialist certified by the California State Bar uh, Board of Legal Specialization. She's a leadership trainer. She's a high performance athlete. She is a fully certified professional ski instructor. She's also a podium finishing stand-up paddleboard racer, scuba dive master. She's clearly taken some time to join me here on the podcast. Francine, how do you find time and welcome? Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. When I wrote my book, Executive Help, it was all based on uh, my seven years, 10 court appearances. Is it common for state fights to arise? And what's been your experience as to some of the reasons that we families end up in court? So, yes, I would say that estate battles, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, immediate family or extended family, it's not uncommon. It happens more often than not. And I believe that when you really strip it down to some of the worst cases, a lot of what's in it is greed. But for the, you know, for a lot of people are going, no, I'm not, it's not because I'm greedy. I just want what's due me. And I think the cause of a lot of that feeling is a lack of communication during the lifetime of the person who just passed away. And, you know, they thought they planned everything, but they didn't tell anybody. And people show up after the person has died. And then now they're in a will contest because somebody says, well, mom told me or dad told me. Right. And it's all these things that people have said but never reduced to writing, never shared with the rest of the family. Nobody, dad never told anybody else that he was going to let you have the family home. Uh, And so you're surprised because you didn't get the family home and everybody else in the family is surprised that you're claiming the family home when they're like, well, we should be all sharing the family home. And so it's this lack of communication and people have expectations that aren't met, promises are made that aren't delivered. Um, lack of trust starts to develop, or there's just people who, um, you know, it's unfortunate, I see it many times in families where by the time somebody has passed away, whether it's a sibling or a parent, there are people already infighting in the family. And so there's no trust within the family. And 
you know, and, and later on we'll talk about trust because that's a big part of the, what I, why I wrote the book, what drives me uh, a lot. What I do is the concept of trust, but I think it's this like degradation of trust and just people having different expectations by the time somebody passes away. You mentioned, you, you said greed is one of the factors. Is it, and I, you know what, in my case, it, it, it was greed because we're three and, you know, you would think that something should be split three ways, should be equal, but it wasn't fair to one sibling and that's how we ended up in court. And there were times where I was thinking that there's, it, it's greed, but is it also a sense of entitlement? People feel that they're entitled to something, even though they may not have been told it, but somewhere in their mind, they believe I'm entitled to this? Yes, I think that's a lot of it. And it does sound like greed at the end. When they come in, it's not because they have this evil intent of greed, but there's a feeling of entitlement. And uh, it's funny that you should mention fairness and equal, because I was just having a conversation with um, someone that I've worked with in terms of helping them develop their emotional intelligence and developing the way they handle life. And they were telling me about they're having a trouble with their mother who has a lot of properties and all of the siblings own property themselves. So nobody is um, poor in this whole family. And so if the mother passed away and left all of her property, let's say to a charity, everybody would be okay. But uh, she informed um, the, the woman I was working with um, let me just call her Sue. Make it right. easy. Okay. But she told Sue that she was going to leave um, a third, um, like more of the property to her son and less to the two daughters. And Sue was pretty upset about that because she felt that it should be divided equally among the three of them because they had all been about similar in terms of the way the family operated. But the son had less than the girls. And the mother perceived the son as needing more help than the girls. And so she decided that she wanted to leave more to the son than the girls. And I I realized that my client was operating from, and I've seen this with others, confusing the notion of fairness with equality. And you mentioned, you just mentioned that, you know, like what, equal, everything should be equal. And it didn't seem fair because I think we all have a tendency to think equality and fairness mean the same thing, but it doesn't. They're two different ideas. You know, you take a piece of pie and you divide it into three equal parts. That's equal, but maybe it's fair to give half the pie to somebody else for some reason. And you have to look and look at the person who's giving the pie away as to why that person might think it's fair to do it differently. So instead of first being the recipient and getting upset because it's not equal, really we have to look at the giver's perspective and ask, you know, why do you think doing it this way is more fair? Mm -hmm. And having that conversation before that person giving the property away passes away and you can't ask that question anymore. Maybe the mother should... I mean, the mother's free to do whatever she wants because of her property, but shouldn't she, to make things a lot easier, have the conversation with all three children while they're all there and say, you know what, I'm doing this because your brother, you know, you know, needs more in life or whatever, whatever the situation is, she should have those conversations with her daughters and all three of them being there. 
they may not like it, but at the end of the day, she can do whatever she wants with it. But why not keep the, the, the family harmony, so to speak, while she's still here and get those hard, hard feelings out of the way now than as, as, uh, and, and then in terms of waiting until she's gone. And, you know, people don't know what, what she really felt. Maybe she should say something now. I agree. I think in an ideal world, that would be the best thing to happen. And I know that there are people who talk about legacy planning. It's not estate planning, but legacy planning, which is much broader. Estate planning is what lawyers do. They put the pieces together and they put it in a trust or in a will. And and then it's all written out as to what's going to happen when this person passes away. That's estate planning. And they figured out the tax consequences and, and all that stuff. But legacy planning is about getting the family ready. So this is much broader, getting the family mentally and emotionally ready for what is about to happen or what will happen in the end. And uh, legacy planning is not something you do once because like you say, the mother can do whatever she wants. And next year she could change her mind and decide, you know what? I am going to do it three ways equal, or I'm going to give it to daughter number two. The mother can do whatever she wants. It's her property. She can give it away to a charity. But if you make legacy planning part, especially if you have a sizable estate and make legacy planning a part of the family process and keep everybody involved and having these conversations, it will make the transition much easier emotionally and mentally on the people receiving the property. And, but, you know, again, it's to asking someone who uh, can do whatever they want to have this, have this conversation. Um, if they, are they obligated to have the conversation? No. And that's the, that's the problem with legacy planning is there's no obligation to do it. But if you wanted to have that great family where, you know, well, I've got a great family right now. I want to keep it that way. I want everybody to be getting along when I pass away. Legacy planning is a good way to go. Is your client open? Is, Sue, is she open to having that conversation or, or she's pretty much done with the, she just got hurt feelings and that's going to spill into because her, her mom's still alive. Her brother's going to be at family events. Is this going to be at the back of her mind that, you know, you know, when mom goes, you know, you're getting more than me. Well, I can't do anything with mom because my client is the daughter. Exactly. But I, did okay. the, I did get the daughter to step back from that heavy sense of entitlement and accept the notion that maybe fairness and equalness is, are not the same. And for her to then go back and at least see if a conversation can be started yeah, and get the family together to have the conversation. And, you know, and like I told her, I said, in the end, you may still not feel like it's fair. You may still not feel like it's equal, whatever, whatever the result is, but at least you'll have had the chance to have a conversation and go, okay, I have to accept it yeah. without feeling angst and resentment over what might happen when when you were talking it made me think of the the television show succession it sounds like the same thing there's there's these three kids they they clearly can be on their own but they're waiting for if something was to happen to the dad they're they're ready to pounce or there's that sense of entitlement and i think maybe that's why it's so popular is that here you've got this rich family clearly no legacy planning and there's that sense of entitlement And I guess that's, is that one of the reasons why you wrote the book? Yeah. So I wrote what every good lawyer wants you to know. And right. because um, it was really 
it's designed for lawsuits, getting ready for lawsuits. That's really it's designed. But there's so much in the book about pre-lawsuits, post-lawsuits, um, about getting along with lawyers, but also having a perspective about the law and the limitations that the legal system has. Legal system is not the solution for all problems. It can solve some problems, but it can't always solve the problems the way you want solved. And understanding that makes a big difference when you get caught in a lawsuit. And with the states and probate and wills, uh, when people pass away and when people get into battles over this, that's a lawsuit. So don't make the mistake that because you know somebody didn't sue you for uh, causing them to have an accident and, and having physical injury, you're not involved in a lawsuit. When there's a probate file and somebody contests the will, that's a lawsuit. It's the same rules apply, the rules of engagement of that of a lawsuit. So my book was designed, uh, basically put in my, in my book, all the things that I've been telling my lawyers, not my lawyers, my clients, year, over years and years and years to get them ready. And what I discovered was that I did more than many lawyers did, many good lawyers did. And the reason why I did more, uh, I need to kind of roll this back a little bit. By the time I was six years old, I had no one to trust and no one to turn to. I felt like I was alone in the world. Uh, my mother had died when I was one and my father left and I was left with my Japanese grandmother. I'm half Japanese and I was right. born in Japan. And when I was five, I was adopted to a family, I had no children, but an American Caucasian father and a Japanese mother. And my grandmother wanted me to be raised as an American. And uh, when I was that summer, I found out about all this when my friends were running circles around me going, your mother's dead, your mother's dead, your mother's dead. And I ran home crying and I ran into the kitchen and my mother says, what's wrong? And I said, they say you're dead. And that night, they, my parents sat me down and they told me the truth that about my mother, real mother had died. And these were my adoptive parents. And my first reaction was, you're phonies. And then I remember that night like it was yesterday. And then my adoptive father spent a long time explaining to me how special I was because I had been chosen to be part of this family. So I went to bed that night feeling very special. A few weeks later, later though, I found out how special I really was when my adopted father entered my room at night and began touching me in ways I did not understand. Wow. And that was my life until I was 20 years old. And if it hadn't been for the Perry Mason show, which I started watching when I was eight years old, I don't know where I would be today. But Perry Mason, I watched it and, and I, I, you know, I, I had no one to turn to. My mother was not helpful. And I only realized many, many years later, after I became a lawyer, she couldn't help me because I was reading the first book ever written on um, battered women syndrome. My mother was an oppressed, battered woman, not physically battered, but mm -hmm. emotionally, mentally. She had all the signs. So she was helpless too. And watching the Perry Mason show every single week, somebody would come to him, accused, they were accused of some murder. And they would turn to him, I can trust, you're the only one I can turn to essentially every single week. And he took care of them. And week after week, I decided I was going to trust Perry Mason. And then I decided I want to be Perry Mason. And I want to be the person that my clients can turn to and trust. And that's what I did. 
And before I became a lawyer, I worked in law offices and I worked for some really good lawyers and I watched to see what they did. And I worked for some not so good lawyers and I watched to see what they did. So I learned, okay, these are, these are some of the qualities of a good lawyer. These are some of the qualities of not such a good lawyer. And then when I became an attorney, I, I, I became my client's Perry Mason and I would spend hours of my time helping my clients understand the system, understand what was coming so that they weren't surprised and they knew that I had their back. I can't guarantee results, but I can guarantee that I'll listen to my client and make sure they're a part of my team and that we have a conversation and that we're in this together. And I wrote the book because, well, one, it helped me save time because now I give my books to my clients and say, you have to read this book, take notes. If you have questions, call me. Um, but also I realized that a lot of good lawyers didn't understand the extent to which clients needed this information. And when I, I teach a continuing legal education course to lawyers that stems from this book, and I convey the notion that clients giving them information is not enough. They have to understand the information. They have to understand what's coming. And that the book was written to help them have the time to understand, written in a way to help clients understand. And I think that this also falls into any kind of legacy planning, right? In the sense mm -hmm. that a, par a person can talk all they want and share information, but it's helping members of the family understand where they're coming from. Yeah. And, that's, and that, that's how you build trust. But when people, someone comes and wants a lawyer, do they, are they, again, they, they're probably watching, you know, Law and Order or Perry Mason, because everybody wants their day in court. But a day in court is never really a day. And they think, if I just get in front of the judge, he clearly is going to understand that I'm dealing with a moron on the other side. And through my lawyer, just guide me the right way and just get me in front of the judge and let me say what I have to say. But it's not that easy, is it? So no. who usually ends up calling you? Is it is it the beneficiary or an executor when it comes to a state a fight? A state fight, usually uh, for us, because we don't do a state planning right. and probate. Um, usually when we get a call, it's because of the lawsuit, it's the beneficiary. Because a beneficiary or someone who was ousted out of the whole plan right. uh, calls because they're attacking what the estate planning attorneys created, which is the will usually, or a trust. Right. And the executor is the person named in the will, or there's no will at all. There's no trust or a will at all. And so the beneficiaries are the ones calling to say, we want our share of this estate. What do we do? Or we want my share. And what the lawyer is telling us isn't my share. And then we have to decide one, if we're going to take the case or not, but two, you know, what, where does the beneficiary stand in all of this? And sometimes, you know, I have to tell the beneficiary, keep your money and move on because you know, all the fighting in the world is going to get you anywhere. You're going to lose. Other times it's like, yeah, it looks like something can be done here. Let's see what it is. But, um, you know, and sometimes like oftentimes we, We've represented a lot of beneficiaries who under the will were supposed to receive the property in defense of another beneficiary who used to be the beneficiary of that will and no longer is. <laughs> so, and those usually aren't families. Those usually are like, I had one where um, there was one Catholic church hospital 
sued because a different Catholic church hospital was getting the property. And wow. so they did a battle as to which hospital was going to get the property, large, large amount of money. Um, this was a woman who had never been married, didn't have children leaving, but she was a very devout um, Catholic. And right. so we were, you know, church battling church. And so wow. sometimes it's not family members. It, it sounds like when the beneficiaries are coming to you, it, it, it's, it seems it's always about the money. It seems like it's, it's greed. And why can't I get what I'm supposed to get? If it, the beneficiaries are going to call you and maybe they do have a case and it's probably because of something the executor's doing, what, what, what kind of things will get an executor in, in trouble um, that they f- end up having now to fight against the beneficiaries? Because, you know, being an executor is a, is a difficult job as it is because nobody's trained for it. You know, you're taking up a lot of time. Um, you're, you're, you're doing the favor of someone, their one last favor they've asked you to do, and you're, you're, you're doing this, and then you've got the hassle of beneficiaries coming after you, or maybe you're not the right person that was chosen as the executor, and you're doing things that end you up in court. Is that, is that, is that a common thing as well? Yes, yes. I think that's the biggest problem with, with the executor is that they have a very serious, big job, and if they don't understand and appreciate how important that job is and they treat it kind of like as a side event in their life they can get into trouble usually though an executor like i said an executor only exists if there's a will which means a lawyer hopefully wrote the will sometimes the lawyer didn't write the will in which case the executor is kind of left on their own unless they go find a lawyer Um, but then if then you should go find a lawyer to help you but an executor list in a will that a lawyer has written usually is going to go to that lawyer because the executor's job is to a couple of things. One is to gather all the assets, you know, identify all the bank accounts, identify all the cars, all the real property, everything that the estate's supposed to have and bring it all together. And the lawyer is usually there to help the executor get all this done, but the executor has to do all the legwork. And right. so, yeah, it's time consuming. And in some jurisdictions, like in California, uh, there is a way, there is a provision in the law to pay the executor a fee for this job. And, you know, I'm not, I've practiced in California, so I don't know what what the law is in all the other states in the United States or in Canada or another country. But, you know, hopefully there's a way to compensate the executor. There there is, as long as it's it's reasonable, um, because you are taking out, you know, on average, you know, statistically, it's it's about 100 hours, probably 18 to 24 months if you're an executor settled in a state. So you are allowed to charge the estate for uh, for your time. So as long as it's reasonable. But right. the the executor, if they don't do the job, is it what usually could end them up in court is that they're not communicating with the beneficiaries or they're doing things that maybe outside the will or, or the, what are some of the things that you've come across that will will definitely get you in trouble if you're an executor? The number one reason is the lack of communication is going about doing things. And the executors probably hasn't done anything wrong or bad or evil. They just haven't communicated with the beneficiary or somebody that's involved in the estate about what they are doing. The second one is dragging their feet just not getting around to it, but procrastinating and not gathering the assets. And so what happens is between dragging your feet and not communicating, the perception of those on the outside are you're not doing your job and you're going to get paid 
ultimately to do this job. And if you're not doing this job, then that means we're, how, how many more, more months do we have to wait for this estate to close before we get the benefits? And so the executor, you know, is you want to, an executor, you want to make sure the executor is doing his or her job in a timely fashion uh, without creating more problems, go out and get the information. It's not that it's difficult it's just hard doing the simple things that need to be done, right? right? You know, going down to the bank and getting the bank statements and and looking at what's happened on a bank account, uh, going, you know, getting the deeds together on a real property. None of this is difficult to do, but it's like it's like life itself. It's just sometimes hard to do the simple things that need to get done. Especially if you're not. Uh, the type of person who's organized or who's good at gathering information or being administrative, um, which I guess right. if, you're, if you're setting up your will and you're choosing an executor, you want to keep in mind, is this the type of person that you think that you could rely on to get the job done? Absolutely. Yeah. They need to be organized. They need to be detail oriented. They need to be able to be the kind of person who won't, when they come across an obstacle, they don't put their head in the sand that they'll solve the problem. Somebody that can get along with the, the attorney, because oftentimes the attorney is the lifeline for the executor. You know, if you don't know what to do, call the attorney and say, I'm stuck here. I don't know how to get this, these documents. How do I get them? Help me out. And the lawyers, I mean, they're getting paid too, um, usually under the same system that the executor is getting paid. So, you know, they should be working together to get this done instead of the executor feeling like they're on their own. Um, like you say, most executors are not trained. They have had no experience in this area. Um, but that's something that, you know, people say, well, uh, you know, Uncle Joe, I really like Uncle Joe. So I'm going to make him the executor of my will without ever considering what the job entails. Exactly. So when should someone start thinking about talking to a lawyer when there's a, a dispute? Well, hopefully before the dispute started, that would be my ideal, <laughs> if you think. And if you think there's going to be a dispute, it's to talk to the lawyer then. And um, it's always before, I, I'm a big advocate for preventive law because it's cheaper than waiting until there's a fight and then paying a lawyer for that. You know, I had a client one time and he was a developer and he would buy property and it was, he would come up with his own contract. And every single time he did that, he would end up in a big lawsuit. It would cost him six figures or more defending against the, the seller suing him because he didn't do what he was supposed to do. And they were just not, each party felt the other person was responsible for the problem. And finally, and after over time, we kept telling him, come to us before you sign the contract. Finally, after four or five of these big lawsuits, he did. And we worked out the contract, fixed it all out. That guy never had a lawsuit on that case. And you know, instead of spending six figures, he spent maybe four or $5,000 getting a contract together. And so preventive law, that's why legacy planning is such a good thing, talking about things beforehand. And then like, if it's an executor beneficiary, having a conversation before it blows up. Right. And talking to a lawyer before it blows up, seeing if there even is a problem before it blows up. If you wait till things blow up, the cost of attorney fees is going to double or more than if you can do it beforehand. Yeah. So what does every good lawyer want the public to know if they're going to hire a lawyer? 
Well, if you're going to hire a lawyer, I, you know, one is get your lawyer through a referral system. It right now, every, every lawyer has a website and they use that to attract clients. And that's just a marketing tool. And everybody should know that a website is just a marketing tool, but um, the website should verify information you get from a friend, a relative, a coworker, a boss, somebody to refer you to a lawyer. If you don't have any other way, go to the website, look it up, but then ask around, you know, and so that when you go in to see a lawyer, you've done a little homework about this lawyer. You kind of know that they do this kind of work. And, but like I say, number one, my talk about my book, how to find a lawyer referral first before you go to any other source. Um, and other sources are just to help you verify um, the information about the lawyer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what are some of the questions you might ask if you when you go see a lawyer, I always tell people, try to have a conversation. And this is in my book. Also, have a conversation with the lawyer, not just a Q&A session. It's not just a, it's an interview for sure. Both you're interviewing the attorney and the attorney's interviewing you. Don't assume they want your case. And, you know, find out, you know, what, what is their level of experience? Or do they actually work in this practice? Do they handle the case or do the junior associates handle the case? Not that there's anything wrong with junior associates. Sometimes you can save a lot of money when they have someone junior who's going to work your case more. Uh, what's your attitude towards lawsuits, disputes, settlements? If you have a lawyer who's gung-ho, let's go to battle and, you know, to the death, that's going to run you up a lot of fees versus an attorney goes, well, we are always going to be looking at settlement as a possibility. Um, what are the ground rules for communication? Are you always going to call the lawyer or should you call the secretary or the paralegal or junior associate? There's lots of ways you can save money. And sometimes the secretary or the paralegal has the answer that the lawyer doesn't because they're in the middle of the case. Right. Um, how much are you going to be involved? And my book is designed to help clients become better clients. It's also written for attorneys to understand what they need to have clients understand. And how, what can you do to save fees and costs, understanding the lawyer's office procedures so that you don't get caught. You want to make sure that your lawyer sets boundaries and has limitations, because if you have a lawyer who just doesn't have those, um, you might be the case that gets at the bottom of the stack because they never get to you. They can't because they have no boundaries, um, you know, and clarity on. Are, do you find that what holds people back is, is that they're intimidated by because it's it's a lawyer and once a they've never dealt with lawyers before because, you know, the whole legal system, being an executor or a state, all of this is probably for 99% of most people all new to them. And their only thing that they know about lawyers is like, you know, Perry Mason or what they see on Law and Order. Can it be intimidating or do you find it intimidating that people? Are absolutely. Absolutely. The law is a scary place because people don't understand the law. And what you see on TV is not what happens every day in the No, world. really? Oh, I thought it would be over an hour. So I know. go to court, it'll be done in an hour. You'd be done in an hour. Right. Yeah, I know. And a state, some, when you get into a dispute, it can take months, years. I've no. seen them take years. <laughs> so, In my case, it was seven years. Yeah, see, seven years. And that's kind of like average in, you know, in, in a lot, actually on the high side of average, but still it's not uncommon. So yes, it's because there is a level of intimidation. And that's why I tell people, you know, have a conversation. A lawyer is just a person like you. The only difference is we have this education 
and we've taken an oath to uphold whatever laws of the state or jurisdiction or country that they're practicing. But, and we're, I really believe that I'm here to serve you. I'm here to help you get through a difficult problem. Because when you have a problem that throws you into the legal system, it's a big problem from a non-lawyer's perspective. And sometimes even as lawyers, we get into it and we're scratching our heads going, oh, I don't know how to solve this problem. It's not apparent. And don't think lawyers have all the answers because we don't. Sometimes we get things that are kind of a you know curveball thrown at us and we have to figure this out and there's no guarantee of outcome. We have to figure it out knowing that there's no guarantee of whatever choice we make on behalf of the client. So yeah, it's going to be very frightening for people. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is to help people kind of get an insider's view on what happens. A good chunk of my book is about what actually happens and what are these delays and, and why are these issues coming up? And I talk about it so that people understand so that they're not afraid going in. You know, like you probably experienced it when you have a seven-year estate, you have something where maybe you're set to have a deposition of someone where one lawyer is going to question somebody and ask them a lot of questions. Absolutely. And then all of a sudden they go, oh, we have to move the deposition because uh, so-and-so is not available. And you're thinking, what do you mean? We had the set. Why are we, why are we moving it? And this is common after seven years, you know how common that is. Um, but going into it, if you don't know that every time something happens that delays it pretty soon, you think, is my lawyer doing their work for me? Right. And they are, but it may not feel that way if you if you don't go in understanding this. Right. But at the end of the day, does anybody ever win? <laughs> you know, uh, one of the quotes in my book is that um, winning a lawsuit is second worst to losing. And I learned this many, many years ago as another attorney told me that. And, and the reason why is when you win a lawsuit, you have had to go through the entire process to get there. That may take, it zaps your life away. And I know this because I was involved in a lawsuit at one point. And the introduction of my book discuss, tells, describes when I became um, a litigant in a lawsuit when we broke up a law firm and our previous partners ended up suing us. We had grounds to sue them and my, hus my husband and I are partners. And we decided, you know what, we're not going to do that because we know this is not going to be fun. We don't want to do that. We'll just move away. It's just money. That's all lawsuits give you is money anyway. We'll just move on. But our ex-partners decided to sue us. I'm an attorney. I understand the system. I know what to expect. And even I went a little crazy because I was involved in the lawsuit. I lost sleep. I was upset. I did hire a good lawyer who said, now, Fran, <laughs> remember, blah, 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 blah. And then I would have to go, oh, right. Okay. I remember because I was like any other client in the world, just going crazy over the fact that I was losing sleep. This was sucking away at my life. And that's what lawsuits will do to you. So I understand that. And then I thought, wow, imagine being somebody who's not a lawyer having to go through this. How much worse is that for them? And so my book is designed to help that person to understand the system who is not a lawyer so that they don't go into it blind because that's how most people do. They go into lawsuits blind and winning a lawsuit, unless you're, you know, got that lawsuit because somebody ran over you and they're clearly liable and you're going to make millions and millions of dollars which these are rare cases. This doesn't happen very often. And after your attorney takes 
there are 30, 40%, 50%, you still going to end up with, you know, five, $6 million. Is it worth seven years of your life to battle over what? What is the realistic outcome of your case in the best case scenario? And this is what a good lawyer will do is sit you down and, and talk about the pros and cons, the upside, the downside, the risks and the benefits. Meanwhile, what you're paying to get that, is it worth it? My book talks about settlement multiple times because that's how you can avoid some of those problems. Does mediation make a difference? A lot Absolutely. of times, how do we feel at the end of this lawsuit? You, you know, you know, the judgment, you know, could go either way. You still got to walk through the same door and you're probably going to be walking down the same hallway and going down the same escalator or be in the same elevator with these people. And it's just dead silence. Having from personal experience, I know, you know, for me it was seven years, but during that seven years, the stress, I ended up with um, double bypass heart surgery. So the stress, and then we still had to continue on with it. But at the end, what what, what are we accomplishing? What, what was accomplished? I'm pretty sure my parents were spinning in their graves watching their three kids in court. And, yeah. and a lot of times I was having out-of-body experiences where I'm just watching that we're having these people, lawyers, judges, decide you know the assets of my parents. And none of these people were at our Christmas dinner. I don't recognize anybody. I recognize us three kids, but we have strangers uh, deciding what's going on. So at the end of going through all this, what's the point? I ask that question to my clients. What, what's the point? What do you, like, I used to do a lot of litigation work. I used to be a trial attorney. Right. And I used to ask that question to all my clients. And because at the early, early part of the lawsuit, I would, to this day, I turn away more cases than I take right. because I convince people to save their money and move on with their lives. And it just requires an attorney to be very frank about it, to be make people see life honestly, you know, get your head out of the sand. Because oftentimes, no matter what, when you go to battle, everybody loses, except the lawyer who gets the fee. Right. And I don't say this to be cynical, but that oftentimes people go to the end of the lawsuit not because they thought they were going to make more money or a lot of money. It's they tell me it's the principle. And I tell people, if you exactly are, it. right, if you are filing a lawsuit out of the principle, don't because the ju judicial system cannot address the principle of it. They're all you're going to get is money. You're not going to get an apology. You're not going to get the satisfaction that you're looking for. This is not how you do it. If you want an apology, you need to go talk to that person one-on-one -on -one and get an apology. In fact, we used to have a client who's long passed away <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he used to, he had a big shopping center and all of his tenants owed him money because he was a very kind hearted man and he would let them carry, he would carry their rent when right. they had hard times. But every once in a while he would be talking to them and they would say something that would upset him and he'd call us and go, I want this tenant evicted. Well, he always had grounds to evict somebody because he was always carrying debt for them. But we got to where we would call the tenant up and say, okay, look, we're getting ready to evict you. What happened? And they would tell us their side of the story. And then we would just say, but would you just call them and apologize? You think that would help? It would help, it wouldn't hurt you. Every time they called and apologized to our client, our client would call and say, never mind, never mind. They call and apologize, I'm good. Because that's the only way he could get an apology and saved him tons of money on attorney's fees, saved the tenant from being evicted, 
right? We just stopped it, right? Just stopped it right before it started. And yeah, we didn't make a lot of money when we did that, but we served the client in the best way possible. And to me, I tell that story even in my book because it's important for people to understand seeking justice is expensive and elusive. Fighting for principle gets you nowhere. Like I said, unless somebody ran you over and you're, you know you're going to make millions and millions of dollars and you're willing to go do battle for five or six years to be able to finally you know, take a couple million home, okay, that's still a risk, but at least you're doing it for the money because that's all you're going to get. But there's always that feeling, I need to be right. I know I'm not going to get that apology, but I want my day in court. Again, if I just get in front of the judge, he's going to see how wrong they are. And I'm right. It doesn't work that way. It's a gamble. I, I tell people it's I, a crapshoot. Anytime you go in front of a third person who's going to decide your fate, you might as well go to Las Vegas and throw your money down there because it's a crapshoot. Yeah. That's why mediation is so good, because if you can go to mediation early, 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 that and think of that as your day in court, because you get to say what you want to say in mediation, but nobody's deciding for you, because mediation is you can't resolve that mediation unless both parties agree. The mediators are neutral just to get the communication going. That's what they're there to do and to see if they can find a spot that will satisfy both. You may not get everything you want, but maybe you walk away with something that's satisfactory. Yeah, well, that's how it ended up for us. We were one day away. It was like, uh, you know, we were. it's like we were about to go off the cliff, you know, and it was the mediation or the next day it was going to be court. So, and we came to an agreement. May not have liked it, but it, it, it just made more sense. And uh, after seven years, it was enough. It just was enough. Right. And at least with mediation, you have some control over the outcome because it doesn't resolve unless you agree. So you had some control over that. Whereas if you go to court and you have a judge decide, you have no control. Well, Francine Tone, I'd like to thank you very much. If people want to get in touch with you, actually, before we go, um, your newest book, The Art of Action. Tell us about, tell me about that. Well, actually that that poor book has been written and rewritten and rewritten so many times now and COVID hit before I was about to launch it. And then life changed, COVID changed my life. I don't know about you, but it changed my life and my perspective. And and I'm gonna have to rewrite that book completely because the way I see life is different, but the book was intended and is intended to help people come to grips with what people, some people call work-life balance, which I don't really believe that there's such a thing really defined as that, but how do we overcome our adversities in order to create life integration. Mm-hmm. And I've been through a lot of adversity. I describe one of them right. today, but I've been through others. And I've learned that by, and COVID was an adversity for everybody. How do we overcome that? How do we learn from that so that we can have control and create life integration when there's so much around us that we have no control over? So that's what that book is ultimately about. Wow. Well, hopefully, well, if people want to find out more about when the book's going to be coming out or also your other book we've been talking about today, where can they find information about you? The easiest is francinetone.com. Okay. Francinetone.com. They go there. They'll know when, I think you can get on the waiting list for when the new book comes out. Cause I know you can click on there. So when it is ready, people will know. And then you've also got your other book 
um, what every lawyer wants, every good, what every good lawyer wants you to know an insider's guide to how to reduce stress, reduce costs, and get the most from your lawyer. Francine Tone, I want to thank you very much for being on the Executor Help podcast. Hopefully we'll have you down uh, again on in the future, sometime down the road, because you've got a lot of experience and you've got a lot of great stories. And I want to thank you today for sharing them with me and also the listeners. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Executor Help Podcast. For more details, visit davidedy.com or follow David on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. The links are in the show notes. Thank you.